Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, we uh, we had an elders retreat this past weekend, uh, and so uh, myself and Orion and Thomas and then uh, Carrie, uh, so elders and staff, we we went off to to Delaware uh, for just kind of like a 24-hour retreat to spend some time praying and planning and uh, just strategizing for the future of Pillar DC. Um, and on the way home, we were we were talking about our favorite dead guys. Um, so I, I don't know if you have a favorite dead guy. My favorite dead guy is Charles Spurgeon. So I'm talking about like heroes. People we were talking about people that we look up to, that we learn from, that are no longer with us. And Charles Spurgeon uh, was a preacher uh, in England in the 1800s. Uh, he was, you know, a lot of people say he was, you know, the greatest preacher ever lived. He was called the Prince of Preachers. Uh, he was an incredible man of God, and he used to preach to thousands every single Sunday. Uh, sometimes tens of thousands of people would come uh, to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And uh, there was uh, one night where uh, he was, uh, it was the day before he was scheduled to preach to about 23,000 people at uh, the Crystal Palace in London. And he went to the venue to go uh, decide where he wanted the platform to be set. So what, in what area was the platform going to be placed so that he could uh, figure out where he wanted to be. And unknown to Spurgeon, uh, he thought he was actually alone in the room, but there was actually a, a workman that was working uh, in one of the galleries uh, that was there, uh, kind of up in the rafters. And uh, Spurgeon, while he was out there, decided to test the acoustics of the building. They didn't have microphones back then, so you know you just had to use your, your big boy voice, your outdoor voice, right, and kind of bellow it out. And so uh, he decided to test out the acoustics, and he stood in the middle of that room, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And that man in the gallery heard those words, he was convicted in his heart, and he went home that night, and he repented of his sins and trusted in Christ. And what's amazing is that Spurgeon didn't hear about this story until years later. Um, the man never really, you know, didn't have an opportunity to go to Charles Spurgeon uh, and to tell him this story. Uh, but the story got back to Charles Spurgeon years later. And the next night after that happened... 23,400 and something people flooded into the Crystal Palace and Charles Spurgeon stood up there and he preached the word of God. But as great of a preacher as Spurgeon was, this story is a reminder to me that God doesn't need us. And that what we're doing is here this morning is supernatural. Jesus says in our passage this morning, abide in me for apart from me you can do nothing. Like He really means that. Jesus really means that apart from Him, we can do nothing. It's impossible for us to do anything at all of eternal value. In John 6.63, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Uh, our strategy here um, at uh, Pillar DC is we, we say we want to get alone with God, get together with others, and get active on mission. So uh, what that means is that if you are uh, a part of Pillar DC here and you want to be a growing follower of Jesus, 
then the three ways you need to do that is you need to get alone with God, you need to get together with others, other believers in community, and get active on mission. And so we, we have, you know, actually if you're coming to the membership class after service, we're going to flesh out what that looks like and what that means. But um, that get alone with God is there for a reason. It's extremely important that we spend time uh, staying connected to Jesus, spending time in God's Word, spending time in prayer. Things can really unravel quickly when we don't abide in Jesus in the Christian life, can't they? Before you know it, you begin making important life decisions without consulting God at all. It's very easy for us to go an entire week... You know, we get busy, stuff starts happening in our life, we're not really spending a whole lot of time in prayer, not really spending a whole lot of time in the Bible, and we start making decisions, sometimes big, important life decisions, and we haven't consulted God at all. And then we wonder why our life is a mess. We wonder why things are beginning to unravel. Or unconfessed sin may remain in our lives unchecked to the point where we start to become numb to it, and then we start to excuse it. And then we start to love it because we can go days and days and maybe even weeks without coming before God in prayer, without letting the searching spotlight of His Word search our hearts and examine us. We don't get there overnight, but uh, the door opens when we stop abiding for those things to happen. And all of those things lead to frustration and heartache in our lives as followers of Jesus. So my aim this morning, and I also believe, by the way, that this is the aim of the passage that we're going to read, is to show you that you can do nothing apart from Jesus. And that that means a couple things. First and foremost, it means that you cannot be righteous or good. You can't be a good person apart from Jesus. We read in our scripture reading this week in Luke chapter 18, a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, Why are you calling me good? Nobody's good but God alone. And he was trying to make a point to this rich young ruler. This rich young ruler thought he was doing a pretty good job of keeping the commandments. He said, if I don't say so myself, I'm I'm doing pretty good. I'm keeping most of them pretty well. And Jesus kind of puts him back in his place right there. And he says, no, no, nobody is good but God alone. And that includes us. So we can't be righteous apart from him. But we also can't do anything in the Christian life apart from Jesus either. I can't preach this morning apart from Jesus. I can stand up here and I can give a very good talk. I might be able to inspire you. I could maybe make you laugh. I might even get you, you know, convince you to come back next week. I could do all of those things, but it does absolutely no good for your soul to advance the kingdom of God, to glorify God. I can't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit filling me in doing this. So that's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. You know the rest of it, but it's no longer I who lives, but who? Christ that lives within me. That's right. Christ that lives within me. And I want you guys to see how the truth that we can do nothing apart from Jesus can actually set you free this morning. And then I want to show you the encouragement and the instruction that Jesus gives us in the passage to help us abide in him. All right. So the text is John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. This was uh, part of our Bible reading. We're going through the uh, one-year Bible reading plan. So if you're following along with us, you would have read John 15 this week. Um, The passage is going to be on the screen behind me, so if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along 
up there. John chapter 15. John's in the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John 15, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help me this morning um, as I do what's absolutely impossible in the flesh. God, we're trying to make camels through the, pass through the eyes of needles this morning. I can't do that. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. So God, we thank you. We praise you that you are with us. God, I pray that right now you, your presence would be in this place, God, that we would set aside every distraction, everything that we may have walked in here with God, and that we would just yield ourselves to you and to your word and allow your word to penetrate our heart God I pray that you would speak to us this morning we need you apart from you we can do nothing God I pray for anybody in this room this morning that has not been born again that doesn't know you who is going who's sitting here this morning and and hearing these truths and thinking to themselves this doesn't make any sense what do you mean apart from him I can do nothing God I pray that you would open up eyes this morning And I pray that you would build up your people, build up your church, encourage us where we need encouragement. Rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, God. Correct us, instruct us where we need to be instructed. And help me, please Jesus, help me. I need you. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so in this passage that we just read, there's quite a bit of imagery that Jesus uses here that we need to unpack to understand what's being said. Uh, Jesus says that the father is the vine dresser, which is just a, a, a gardener, okay? The father is the vine dresser, and, and Jesus is the true vine. He says, I am the true vine. Why does he say I'm the true vine? What, is, what does that mean? Why not just the vine? Well, Jesus is pointing us back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, a common metaphor throughout scripture for the people of Israel was that they were the vine of Israel, uh, you see that in multiple books of the, of the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel are referred to as the vine. And 
they were planted, a vine planted by God to bear fruit for his pleasure. Sometimes the Old Testament also refers to them as a vineyard, okay? So God plants his vineyard or he plants his vine and he wants them to bear fruit, right? To bear fruit for his glory. Now listen to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel and he says this. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God rescued a people for himself. He called them to be his own precious possession. And he called them to obey him and to obey his law and to bear fruit and to be a witness among the nations of who he is. But instead of doing that, instead of bearing the fruit of righteousness, instead of bearing the fruit of justice, God looked at his vineyard and he found thorns and thistles. He found bloodshed and he found an outcry and he found unrighteousness. Israel failed to bear the fruit of righteousness. And guess what? So have we. We have also failed to bear the fruit of righteousness. Jesus is the true vine who came to do what we couldn't do. Jesus came to fulfill the law and to produce the fruit of righteousness. And so now we're not the vine, but we are the dependent branches who depend upon the vine for everything. Because there's not a single person in this room who can say, yep, I've kept the law. Jesus said the law is summed up in these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you have done that consistently, without fail, without error, every single minute, every single day for your entire life, then come talk to me after service. We need to have a chat. Not one of us has done that. So there's two types of branches that Jesus describes here. He, he describes two branches. The first type of branch is the branch that does not abide in the vine. Look at verse 6 again. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So Jesus says that the branch that doesn't abide in the vine withers. Why does it wither? Well, it withers because it's, not, it's disconnected from its source of life. A person that is not connected to Jesus will not be spiritually nourished. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no way to produce righteousness on your own. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Not one of us has loved God with all our heart or our neighbor as ourselves. Think about this. God gave us all of creation to enjoy and he simply asked us to produce the fruit of righteousness, to love him and to trust him. And instead, we have produced the thorns and thistles of wickedness and disobedience. It doesn't matter how many orphans you adopt or uh, if you never speak an unkind word to somebody again, we have failed the test of righteousness. Jesus is our only hope. And Jesus also says that the branch that is not abiding is thrown away, gathered, and burned. And this is imagery pointing towards judgment. And it's, it's reminiscent of Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 and 42. This is Jesus speaking. And he's telling a parable. He's using an analogy of, of weeds and wheat in a field. 
So the wheat is obviously good. You know, the, the, the farmer wants to keep the wheat, but the weeds are bad. They choke out the wheat. So Jesus says in verse 40, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Listen very closely here, okay? This is a sobering truth we're about to read. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, branches that are dead and do not produce fruit are no longer good for anything except firewood. Those who reject Jesus Christ and the gospel cannot produce fruit. They're spiritually impotent. And this imagery of being thrown away and and burned means separation from God in hell forever. That's what Jesus is talking about. And this is the fate of every single, this is the fate that every single person on earth deserves. God would be perfectly just in giving us what our sin deserves. Now, there's likely some of you sitting in your seats right now and you're tensing up and you're bristling at hearing that. And, and, and it makes you even a little bit angry. And that's because we don't want to admit that we're sinners. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to admit that we need a Savior. Our, our pride wants to say, no, no, I am a good person. I do deserve God's love. I do deserve God's gift. But that, again, that's where we've got to go back to and allow the law of God to convict us. Not one of us has loved God with all of our heart. Not one of us has loved our neighbor as ourselves. Everything that we do is tainted by selfish and sinful motives. But here's the deal. Even though God is not obligated to save a single, single one of us, God is gracious and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And so the horror of judgment that we just read about actually accentuates the glory of God's mercy. See, Jesus also describes the branch that is abiding. And in verse 5, he says that the branch that, is, that abides in the vine is bearing fruit. How can a sinner in a dead branch like you and I bear the fruit of righteousness? By abiding in the vine. This is the gospel. Jesus is the true Israel, the true vine that produces the fruit that glorifies God the Father. Since we are not righteous, we needed a righteousness that's not our own, okay? And Jesus is that righteousness. But we also needed somebody to pay our sin debt because the wages of sin is death. God just can't look the other way and and sweep sin under the rug. Somebody must pay the debt that we owe for our sin. So Jesus came to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin by dying on the cross, What happened on the cross is that Jesus suffered the terrible fate of a fruitless branch so that you don't have to. Jesus suffered the terrible fate of a fruitless branch so that you don't have to. He endured the full righteous anger of God towards sin. He took our sin and then in exchange, he gives us his righteousness as a free gift. It's not earned. We receive it by abiding. What does that word mean? What does it mean to abide? It, it literally just means to remain. It means to receive. There's no effort involved in abiding. You're just receiving and another is doing all of the work on your behalf. Branches do not put forth effort to get life 
from the vine. They just receive the nutrients that are coming up from the ground, through the roots, through the trunk of the tree, and then they get fed into the branches. It's the same way we receive Jesus' righteousness. We don't do any of it on our own effort. Are you, are you tracking with me? Let me ask you, have you ever truly done that? Have you ever truly received Jesus' righteousness? Have you trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe that He died on the cross for you and that He rose from the dead and that He really can make you clean? That if you will trust in Him, you'll receive His righteousness. If you haven't done that, I would invite you to do it today. You know, one way to know whether or not you have is to examine the fruit in your life. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the fruit that's produced in someone who abides in Jesus. Does that describe you? Or would you say that your life is more defined by sin, selfishness, anger, rage, sexual immorality, lying, gossip, slander? If that's you, all of that can change today. Jesus will forgive you and wash you white as snow. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and you will be born again. And I don't care if you've been in church your whole life and you're just now realizing, you know what? I don't know if I've done that. Because guess what? That was me when I was 24 years old. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a church plant. And I was lost. I did not know God. I just was playing church. I know there's some people in this room who've been playing church your whole life. It's time to stop playing church and it's time to have a real relationship with God. To be connected to the vine to receive His righteousness. He's got real abundant life for you that you can have today. Don't put it off. Do that this morning. You can do it in your seat right now as I'm preaching. I won't mind. If you stop listening to me for that reason, to start praying, I'm totally cool with that. If it's to look at your phone, then I'm not cool with it. But what about those who have trusted in Jesus? Because, like, let's be honest, we know from experience that our faith can waver and we're inconsistent in bearing fruit, Right? Nobody's very, you know, consistent all the time in bearing fruit. So there, there's two senses in which we can understand this passage. There's initial saving faith which attaches us to the vine where we receive the righteousness of God and that cannot be undone. You cannot lose your salvation. If you've been grafted into the vine, Jesus will keep you. We're going to talk about how he does that here in a, in a second. So there's initial saving faith, but then there is an ongoing abiding that enables us to bear fruit. It's important to remember that Jesus was talking to his disciples in this passage. Look at verse 3. Jesus, Jesus says, already you are clean because what? Because you've been doing a lot of good works? Because you've kept my law? No, what does he say? Because of the word I have spoken to you. What's the word? It's the gospel that we just talked about. You're clean because of the gospel. Because of the word of Jesus Christ. So, if you're born again while your salvation is secure, what can happen if you're not abiding or if you're inconsistent in abiding is that your enjoyment of God can most certainly be disrupted. In other words, you'll be miserable. <laughs> because Christians who have the Holy Spirit cannot just continue on in sin. The Holy Spirit is not going to let you. He is going to make your life miserable until you repent and come back to Him. He is not going to let you be happy. And that's, and that's God's grace, by the way. 
That's God being gracious to us. If you're anything like me, then you probably get frustrated at times with your inconsistency and bearing fruit. If anything, I'm to a fault. I get frustrated with myself and I beat myself up. It can be exasperating. You know, I want to obey and bear fruit, but so often I find myself failing. Anybody relate? I've definitely changed. Be thankful you didn't know the Jared from 10 years ago. I'm a different person. But the longer I walk with Jesus, you know what? The more aware I become of the depths of my sinfulness. But the more aware I become of the depths of God's grace. Because God's grace just swallows up our sin. Swallows up our sinfulness. So what do we do, though, with this inconsistency? How do we abide? Jesus helps his disciples in this passage in two ways. He encourages us and he instructs us. So let's look at how Jesus encourages us in fruit-bearing. By the way, I forgot to tell you, there are outlines in your chair. Sorry, I just kind of got took off. So hopefully you found those. If you didn't, you can start now. So this will be the next part in your outline, encouragement and fruit-bearing. Number one, God covenants. God covenants with us. And, and I know it's not a part of the, of the passage that we read, but it is a part of the unit. It's, a, it's in the same chapter. In verse 16 of John 15, Jesus says this to the disciples. This is an amazing verse. I just want you to like sit back and just think about what this is saying. This, this blows me away every time I read it. He says to the disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. (laughs) That's amazing. You didn't choose me. I chose you that your fruit, that you should bear fruit, and that your fruit will remain, meaning it's going to last. That's a guarantee. That's a covenant from God to you. So that when we worry, oh no, I'm inconsistent and fruit-bearing. Am I really saved? Does God really love me? If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit. And it will continue. It will remain. Because you did nothing to initiate your relationship with God. God did all the initiating. And God does all the keeping. Do you you see how good that news is? Are you all with me? Amen? That is really good news. Got to get that. This isn't the price is right where we get our name called, but then we have to get the numbers right to win a prize. We don't start in the spirit and finish in the flesh. It's so common for Christians to have the idea of of grace that it's God's work to save us, and then in gratitude, we do our part to, to live as Christians and follow Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's not what abiding means. Abiding means we don't do any work. We just receive, and we depend on the one who does the work on our behalf. Now, I've told you guys before, God saved me out of cultural Christianity. I was a lukewarm Christian who claimed Christ but didn't obey Him. So when I first surrendered to Jesus, like I was all in. I, like, I, went, I ran hard and fast the other way. Some of you have heard of cage stage Christians, like where you need to, like when you first kind of get saved, you need to be put in a cage because you're a little bit like over the top, you know? Like that was me. Like I was militant against sin. I was like, let, let, let sin show its face around here and watch me kill it. I'm going after sin in my life, right? Like I was, I was, you know, ready to go. But real quickly after that, all of a sudden, reality hit me in the face and I began to notice inconsistencies in my life. And I started going, uh-oh. Like I got the struggle here and, and, and I'm having a hard time like, 
you know, quitting that thing or, or, or doing this thing that Jesus is commanding me to do. And that led to despair in my life. It led to despair. It led to doubting if God's work in me was really real. And if you're struggling with bearing fruit con- consistently, the answer is not to discipline yourself and try harder. Trust me, I can tell you from experience. The answer is not to discipline yourself and try harder. Have you, anybody ever gone like apple picking before? Into, in, in an orchard? Like, so we lived in Canada for four and a half years. One of my favorite things that we did up there in the fall was I mean, we would go apple picking in the orchards and the apples are just amazing. You pick them right off the tree and start eating. But maybe, I don't know if you've ever been in an orchard, but if you have, have you ever walked by a fruit tree and heard the branches grunting to push out fruit? Ah! Have you ever, ever seen that happen? No. Branches don't have to try to, to put forth effort to put out fruit, do they? Neither do we. <laughs> we don't have to put forth effort to push out fruit. The answer for us, when we notice inconsistency in our life, when our fruit bearing is inconsistent, is to look to the cross of Jesus and abide in His love. The answer is to look to the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. That promise that we read where Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That promise was bought for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's yours if you've placed your faith in Him. It's yours, not because of you, but because of the blood of Jesus. That's what Jeremiah, that's the new covenant promise. Jeremiah 31, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. God changes us from the inside out. Praise God. God covenants. And secondly, God chastens. God chastens. That's a word for chastise, uh, discipline. It starts with a C, though, and so it works with the one before that. So I like alliteration. Look at John 15, 2. Jesus says, Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, the vine dresser, the Father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. God is so committed to your fruit bearing that he will do whatever it takes to ensure that you continue to bear fruit. Whatever it takes. Besides the fact that God is keeping his covenant, why is he so committed, though, to branches bearing fruit? Like, why is God so committed to that? Look at two, past, two, two of the verses here in, in John 15. I want to show you verse 8 and verse 11. Verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you what? Bear much fruit. God gets glory when we bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. And then look down at verse 11. Jesus says, These things, everything I've just said, I have spoken to you that what? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God is radically committed to his own glory and to your joy. Which means that he will prune the branches that do, not, that do bear fruit so that we bear more fruit. And pruning is not always, it's, actually it's never pleasant. It doesn't tickle. It doesn't feel good. There are many of you in this room who are enduring trials in your life right now. While we don't know all the reasons why, we do know from God's word that he disciplines us for our good. And there, you know, there are two ways that you can respond to trials in your life. They can make you bitter against God and they can push you away from him or you can press into him. One of two directions that trials can push you. Non-believers and immature Christians see trials as evidence that God does not care for them. But as we mature in our relationships with Jesus, we come 
to see trials as evidence that God most certainly loves and cares for us. So these trials, as hard as they are, are not there to punish us. They're there for our good. John Newton, he wrote the hymn uh, Amazing Grace. He's got an incredible story. Um, he, he says this. He says, Afflictions quicken us to prayer. It is a pity that it should be so, but experience testifies that a long course of ease and prosperity without painful changes has an unhappy tendency to make us cold and formal in our secret worship. But troubles rouse our spirits and constrain us to call upon the Lord in good earnest. When we feel a need of that help, which we only can have from His almighty arm, afflictions are useful and in a degree, and in a degree necessary to remind us that this world is not our rest and to call our thoughts upwards where our true treasure is. Hebrews 12.10 says that, that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness, a.k.a. that we may bear the fruit of righteousness. So, are you in a pruning season right now? Are you enduring a pruning season right now in your life? God's discipline is evidence of God's radical commitment to His glory and to your joy. Now, we have the necessary foundation and, and comfort of knowing God covenants and is committed to our fruit bearing now. So we've talked about how God covenants and he's committed to our fruit bearing. But the question now becomes, what do we do? How do we bear fruit? Jesus not only gives us encouragement, he gives us instruction. He gives us instruction. First, he says, pray the will of God. Look at verse 7 in John 15. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So prayer is expressing complete and total dependence on God. That's what prayer does. There's a play in football, if you're not familiar, called the Hail Mary. And a Hail Mary is when there's one second on the clock, you're down by a touchdown, you're 40 yards from the end zone or 60 yards from the end zone, and Basically, what you got to do is the quarterback's got to drop back, all the receivers run straight for the end zone, and you just got to chuck the ball as far as you can, throw it towards the end zone, and just pray for a miracle. Pray that one of your players comes down with that ball in the end zone. The odds of it happening, the odds of it being a successful play are rare, but when it happens, everybody goes nuts and storms the field. It's really cool. It's awesome. But your only hope is a Hail Mary. In life, every play that we run is a Hail Mary situation. Because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Perhaps the most important way to bear fruit is to cling to Jesus in dependent prayer. Many Christians aren't bearing fruit because they aren't praying well. And they're not praying well because they're not abiding. Jesus attaches conditions to that promise in verse 7. Did you notice that? Look at the conditions that he attaches to that promise in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So that if is that conditional clause. So to be, to be able to pray the will of God, if, if Jesus says my words must abide in you, then to be able to pray the will of God, we, must, we should know the will of God, right? Like we can't pray his will if we don't know it. And if Jesus' words abide in us, then we will know and be aligned with God's will. So when we pray that whatever we wish, 
will be done for us because what we wish is what God wishes. What we want is what God wants. God's word is what fuels prayer. In fact, it's impossible for us to pray rightly if we don't know God's word. But in our distracted age, Christians spend precious little time in God's word, reading the Bible. I just heard this week uh, in a Pew Research survey that just 5% of born-again Christians say that they have read the entire Bible from cover to cover. 5% have read the entire Bible from cover to cover. Think about that. How can you know God's will, and consequently, how can you pray rightly if you don't know what God has said? Like, if you don't know the full revelation of God, like, like God didn't give us this so that we could pick out, you know, bits and pieces. Like, it's one story. And, and he has he's re- literally revealed himself to us in his word. So how can we pray rightly if we don't know what God has said? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Not some of it, all Scripture. Can I just be real with you guys right now? If you have a microwaved devotional life where you sit down for 10 minutes in the morning to read My Daily Bread, you should not expect a powerful prayer life. I know that's probably going to sting for some of you. And I'm not saying it to try it to hurt you. I'm saying it because I want you to change. <laughs> and sometimes we need a little shock to the system to wake us up out of our slumber to, to, to change the way we're doing things. I'm, praise God, I'm glad that you're getting up and that you're making an effort, that you're, you know, you're fi- trying to find some time. I know you've got a busy schedule, but at the end of the day, do you want to walk with God or do you not want to walk with God? Do you want a powerful prayer life or do you not? Do you want to know his word? Do you want to have his promises so that you can have joy even in the midst of trials? If you do, then there's going to have to be some priorities that are going to have to change in your life. Like, we can't microwave our devotionals in the mornings. We've got to set aside time that's going to be protected, that's going to be sacred, and nothing is going to invade in on it. It's very likely that your prayer life isn't powerful because you're not praying in line with God's will, because you don't know it. For God's word to abide in us, we, we, not only do we need to read it, but we need to meditate on it. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. When was the last time you memorized scripture? There are all sorts of excuses we can come up with to not meditate on God's word, isn't there? To not memorize scripture. I don't have time. It's, it's hard for me to focus. I don't have a good memory. But what if I offered you $1,000 for every Bible verse you were going to memorize over the next week? You think that that might change things? I bet, you, I bet you you could memorize some Bible verses. I bet you you'd come back here with about 50 of them memorized. So, so what does that tell us? It tells us that this isn't an, uh, an ability issue. This isn't a, uh, I don't, I can't, I don't have the ability. This is a heart issue. Because, I mean, if, if $50,000 will motivate us, that means obviously we can do it. It just takes some fire underneath us, Right? Our sinful hearts constantly tempt us to turn to broken cisterns that hold no water, while the whole time we've got living water that satisfies right here in God's Word. Jesus is far more valuable than $1,000. 
one of these promises is worth more than all the money and all the treasure in the entire universe. Because guess what? All that stuff is going to fade. All of it's going to go away. None of it's going to last. But every single one of these promises is going to last forever. Like it's never going to go away. That should be what drives us to his word. That should be what drives us to meditate on God's word, to memorize his promises. And that is what will empower a prayer life that actually has vitality, that's got life. You want to see God answer prayers in supernatural ways in your life? He will do it. The the lack is not on his end. It's not because he's not keeping his end of the bargain. God is ready and waiting to pour out blessings on you. He's just waiting for you to come. Are you ready to come? Now, practically, real quick, here's, let me give you some actual steps that you can implement in your quiet time. Because I don't want to just, you know, tell you, you know, like motivate you to do this. Or, or, but I want, I want to give you some, some meat on these bones, okay? So, first of all, follow a Bible reading plan. If you are not following along with our Bible reading plan or you don't have one, we have some on the back table there at that info table. Start reading with us. You just jump in in the middle. It's okay. Don't worry if you didn't start. Don't worry if you've been missing chapters. It's all right. Like Jesus is not like checking to make sure you got all the chapters on your reading plan. He doesn't care. Like he just wants you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants you to know. He wants his word to abide in you. So if you missed John chapter 13 and 14 this week, I mean, if you get some time, go back and read it. But it's okay. Don't let it discourage you and, and just go, ah, I give up. So follow a Bible reading plan as best you can to set aside a consistent, specific time and place and consecrate it to God. Make a commitment. Like you wouldn't like, like you, you, you know, most of you have, you know, jobs where you go into work, you go nine to five and you're not just going to call your boss and say, hey, um, something, something better came along or something more important came along. I'm not going to come into work uh, until like lunchtime today. Cool. All right. See you later. Like what would happen? You'd get fired, right? Like, but it's so easy for us to, to waltz to, up to God and to say, hey, uh, I, I know you've commanded me for, you know, for your word to abide in me and me to abide in you, but I got some really important things to do. I'm sure you'll understand. Maybe I'll talk next week. Like, really? Like, really? So set aside a consistent, specific time. Consecrate it to God. Don't let anything get in the way of that time. And then when, when, you, when you read the word, Find a passage that stands out to you. It might be a verse, it might be a paragraph, and focus in on it. So in your Bible reading, if you were reading John chapter 15 this morning in your Bible reading, maybe you would say those first 11 verses really stood out to me. So then you take those 11 verses, and here's a few things you could do. You could, you could rewrite the passage in your own words. Just, just kind of rewrite it down in your own words. You could pray the passage back to God. You could memorize part of the passage. Maybe you could memorize one of those verses. You could, you could decide, you know what, you could set and discover a minimum number of insights. You could say, okay, I'm not going to get up from this paper until I've written down 10 insights that I see from these verses right here. could be anything, any insight. You could write down questions it brings up, and you could discuss it with your disciple maker. Or if you don't have a disciple maker, then we can help get you connected with one. There's all sorts of ways we can do this. And by the way, many of these suggestions that I just gave you are taken from a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. I would highly commend that book to you. If you're frustrated in your spiritual disciplines and in your devotional life, I can't more highly commend that book to you. Pick it up, read it. Okay, we need to pray the will of God, know the will of God. Lastly, we need to do the will of God. As important as praying and knowing the will of God is for fruit bearing, doing the will of God is equally important. Jesus says in in verse 9 and 10, 
He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is very clear, Jesus very clearly right here tells us how to abide in him. Obey his commandments. If you obey my commandments, you will abide in my love. Jesus is not saying, now listen carefully here, he's not saying that we need to obey in order to earn his love. He says, he says, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So Jesus is saying, you've already got my love. I have loved you. I have chosen you. I chose you that you would bear much fruit and so prove to my, be my disciples. So abide in it. Remain in it. Stay in it. It's much like a, the, the commands aren't there for us to earn his love but to keep us there. It's like a parent who sets down rules for a child. No, you cannot have ice cream for breakfast or run out into the street. Why? Because I don't love you? Of course not. It's, it's precisely because I do love you that I've put these commands down, that I've put these rules down, because I want you to be healthy. I don't want you to get hit by a car. God loves you. He wants you to be spiritually nourished. He wants you to have fullness of joy. And that's why Jesus follows up in verse 11, this uh, verse we just read with verse 11. These things I've spoken to you so that your joy, my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. One of the biggest, one of the devil's biggest lies, a lie that he has been told since the Garden of Eden, is that if you obey God's commands, it's going to take all the fun and delight out of life. All right? What did the serpent tell Eve? God knows you will be like him if you eat that fruit. That's why he doesn't want you to have it. God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to be really happy. If you want to be really happy, don't listen to God. God's trying to keep you from your best life. The lie is that we have to choose between joy and obeying God's commands. That's the lie. But praise God, the truth is that we don't have to choose. It's a two-for-one special. We get both. <laughs> In fact, we, we get joy by obeying God's commands. Joy is found in obedience because all of God's commands come from his love and lead to his love. So what needs to change for you in your life? Is there unconfessed or unrepented of sin that's keeping you from abiding? I invite you to lay that sin down this morning and turn from it. Jesus' commands are not burdensome. Is there, is there some reprioritization that needs to happen in your calendar? I'd invite you to, to make that decision and to, to commit to that this morning, saying, God, I am going to set aside time. I'm going to make time for you because you are the top priority in my life. I want to abide in you. If you're a fruitless branch that has never trusted in the vine, you also can do that this morning. Receive Jesus and your life will begin to bear the beautiful fruit of righteousness. God wants you to pray his will, know his will, and do his will so that your joy will be full and his glory will be great. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And uh, I'm going to close this in prayer. And uh, as, we're, as we're praying and then as we're, we're singing of this closing song, um, if you have a decision that you need to make, um, if, if you know God is calling you uh, to, 
you know, confess some sin or to give your life to him for the first time or rededicate your life to him or rearrange your calendar and your priorities. Uh, I'm going to be uh, back in the back there. Uh, Thomas, I'm going to ask Thomas to be back in the back there and you can come and you can find one of us and we'd love to talk to you uh, during the, the closing song and even after uh, the service. So let me pray. God, I thank you so much for, um, for your promises and for your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us, the blood of Jesus that has purchased this new covenant that makes it possible for, for you to choose sinners like us, to make us clean, to adopt us into your family, and then to give us in just so many promises in your word, we can't even count them, and every single one of them is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. God, you are so good. I pray for the people in this room. Oh God, I want them so badly to know you like this. I don't want them to see and to, to, to taste and see that fullness of joy is found in abiding in you. It's found in walking in obedience to your commands. Oh God, I pray that people would see that. I pray for anybody here this morning who's not born again. God, I can't make a camel go through the eye of a needle. I can't say anything that's going to save, but God, would you do it now? Would you convert their hearts now? Would you speak to them now, oh God? Would you let light, the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shine into their hearts? God, may they, may they be born anew today, right in this very moment. You can do it, oh God. May you get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise in our lives. We love you, Jesus. Amen.